0: If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This
1: is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur,
0: featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing
1: entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the show today. This episode is brought to you by the Recession Proof Summit. If you want to learn how to transform your business in order to survive and thrive in the new economy, then this is the number one virtual summit you will attend in 2018. Featuring over 100 CEOs, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and game changers, the Recession Proof Summit covers 10 learning tracks and is designed in order to help you succeed in every area of your business. For more details, visit www.odogwu.com. That's www.odogwu.com and sign up for the email list and you'll get a lot of information concerning what the Recession Proof Summit is all about and how it can help you succeed and thrive in the future. And without further ado, on with the show. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I have a great guest today. I'm talking to Steve Blue. Steve is one of the preeminent business growth and transformation strategists in the world. He has over 40 years of experience helping companies survive and thrive in almost any business environment. He's the CEO of Miller Ingenuity, a place where he's helped transform a 60-year-old manufacturing company into an international powerhouse. He's a noted keynote speaker, teacher, and board member of several nonprofit organizations. In addition to all that, Steve is the author of several multiple best-selling books, including The Art of Success, which he co-wrote with Jack Canfield, which is coming out this summer 2017, American Manufacturing 2.0, The $10 Million Employee, and Burn Now, if you think that's not keeping Steve busy enough, Steve also writes for many publications, including Entrepreneur.com, Success.com, Fortune, Huffington Post, Business Journals, and a lot more industry publications. He's a highly sought-after consultant that helps businesses change the way they do business in the 21st century. So I'm pleased to have him on the show today to tell us a little bit about his interest, his wisdom, his background, and the art of success, and much more. So without further ado, Steve, welcome to the show. Well,
0: thank you, Chi. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: Great. So, Steve, let's get... I've, I've said a lot about you, and you have over 40 years of experience, which is more than I've been alive, so, typically. So, <laughs> Thanks for telling me that. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we get started, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got to where you are today.
0: Well, um, uh, as you said in the uh, intro, I'm a uh, business transformation expert, and uh, in the last 40 years, that's not something you just end up doing, uh, unless perhaps you you uh, go for a PhD and become a university professor. They seem to think they have a lock on uh, transforming businesses, even though most of them have not done it before. But over the course of 40 years, uh, I've been all over the map of your uh, your uh, listeners. Gee, I've, I've been an I've been an entrepreneur. I've worked for Fortune 500 companies, I've been an executive, I've I've, uh, done startups, uh, and everything in between, and over the years, I got a knack for hunting down problems and and fixing them. That's how how I got my sort of corporate gunsmanship Mm -hmm. uh, in a Fortune 500 company uh, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, I started as a factory floor supervisor. And I'd look around and I'd see things that were wrong that nobody was fixing, or, or, or nobody because they didn't know how, or, or perhaps because they didn't want to. Uh, you know, a lot of corporate problems are toxic to touch because if you touch them and you, and you try to fix them and you don't, you, you sort of get screwed. And so I, I er, earned a, a reputation um, at what is now Rockwell International. It used to be Alan Bradley Automation, and uh, as a problem solver and a fixer. And so mm-hmm. I. They sort of sent me all over the world to fix, and so as a result of that, Chief, uh, I've seen every kind of problem in a, in, a, in a large company, and in small companies, I've seen every kind of problem there is, and every kind of department there is, and every function there is, and and, and I've and I know how to fix them, and so over the last forty years, I, I got to the point where you know I tell people when I when I uh, do keynote speeches, I say, you don't have a problem that I haven't seen, and you don't have a problem that I haven't already solved. That's mm-hmm. sort of how I got my credentials. Then I started writing books about it uh, in the last three or four years. So Actually, more than that, my first one, I think, was published in 2009. And um, as a matter of fact, the latest one that you mentioned in the intro, the uh, Mastering the Art of Success that I co-authored with Jack Canfield, that just came out two weeks ago. Okay. And it hit the Amazon bestseller list on day two. Oh, wow. That's, that's kind of cool. It actually hit yeah. three lists. It was number three in one list. It was number 42 in another list. It was like number 74 on the third list. So that one's kind of taken off like a rocket. What I wrote about uh, primarily in that book, uh, which will be of interest to, to your uh, listeners, is uh, how a, a company can transform itself from basically rust belt to, in, into high tech. Uh, I've done it, so I, you know, so it's not an academic exercise, and, that, and that's basically what I wrote about in that book. It's what, what I call unlock, unleashing a company's innovational potential.
1: Okay. Great. So, um, you mentioned a lot of things there, but I just want to do a quick follow-up before we continue. So, when you were sent out as a fixer of fixing problems in companies, the skill set that you applied, how did you acquire that skill set? Was it through trial and error or were there specific books? Or what prepared you for that role, essentially? Yeah.
0: That's a good question. Uh, it's all of the above. Uh, first, I was very inquisitive because I was too stupid to know, you know how things were supposed to be. And so I'd go into an organization and I'd say that the people had been, you know, inertia takes over a company after a while. I'm sure you know this. And just because it's the way it's always been done is the way it's always been done. Nobody questions it. That's why people hire consultants, Yeah, bring in a different set of eyes. And then the guy says, why the hell are you doing it this way? It's just dumb. And so I was inquisitive and I didn't know any better, uh, which gave me an edge uh, in terms of the other people that had looked at these uh, problems. And then secondly, I uh, I read a lot of books. I mean, I still do. I, I probably read two, two to four books a month. Uh, I've been to, uh, the, I've read all of Tony Robbins's books. I've read all of Brian Tracy's books. You, you, you name them, I've read all their books. Mm. And uh, so I was, I was constantly learning. Uh, I've been to the, uh, the firewalk that Robbins does. I think I've done that five times. Mm-hmm. And so I had this, you know, kind of. You know, uh, intellectual curiosity, and that I. And the other, the the other part of it is, I wasn't afraid to jump in and, and take on a problem that nobody else wanted to take on. I had nothing to lose, mm-hmm. especially early in my career. It's like I'm a nobody here; everybody else is a somebody. So I'm going to grab this problem. If I fail, so what?
1: Hmm. That's interesting stuff. So now, as we're talking about this, my mind is racing and thinking majority of the problems a lot of companies face is a when the economy goes down when there's a downturn in the market so if there's that type of economic crisis and then an economy and the company starts to go down what do you look for specifically to try and help turn that company around when there's a macro crisis going on
0: yeah well you know i've been around long enough i've been a a few of those, right? Uh, yeah. The most recent was uh, 2008, 2009. Arguably, depending on what, you know when you think we entered it, and that was the worst one since the Great Depression. Then, mm-hmm. then there was a mini one. I can't remember what it was to 20 uh, uh, I think 2001,
1: so, 2000, 2002, 2001,
0: yeah, yeah, something like that. So, but that was a little one. I mean, that you know that that wasn't uh, 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 life threatening.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One in 2009 was life threatening. A lot of companies never came out on the other side and uh I, in fact, I wrote a piece I think it was in Forbes uh, about you know how to prepare for the next recession yeah everybody uh, this is to your question. everybody that's running a, a business should be prepared for the next recession because as we all know it's not the, it's not if it's when yeah and so you have a battle plan in place to say, okay, what's the worst case that can happen uh, what we did <coughs> excuse me, what I advised uh, other CEOs do is say, okay, assume that uh, your top line uh, in a recession can go will go down to x and then assume maybe two or three different brackets two or three different levels of uh, what is the absolute worst it could possibly be uh, uh, and let's assume that's y- your break even okay it may not be it may be worse than that yeah. right but if it's It'll worse than break even yeah. yeah right if it's worse than your break even you're you're going to go belly up and, and, and you can't do a thing about it so you start with break even, and then the next best case scenario. So you have two or three levels that you. If I hit this level, the here's what I, here are the levers that I'm going to pull, mm-hmm. and uh, you can only really pull on operating expenses at that point in time. Yeah. However, uh, what I advise CEOs and uh, business owners say, okay, pull for a few more of your uh, discretionary operating expenses than you might need to at that level of sales, and 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 take that money. And invest it in a marketing program to pull ahead of your competition because I assume your competition is hunkering down, covering up, hoping to survive. And now is the time to start your program, your uh, marketing push, uh, and your uh, public relations push, uh, your product push, whatever it is you may have that uh, could uh, uh, surpass them. Now is the time to do that. So when you do come out on the other side of the recession, you're actually stronger than when you went in, and which is entirely possible. I've done it. Most companies and most uh, business owners and CEOs think I can't possibly be stronger after a recession. I can only be weaker. Mm. Uh, That's a myth.
1: Mm, That's very interesting. So on a follow-up to that, um, what of a company, okay, let's take, for example, the economy itself is not doing bad. But take, for example, the company started, maybe it's a new startup, and they're unprofitable. So what are some of the first steps you would take to turn an unprofitable company into a profitable company in the black
0: well, you know, the, uh, the the old saying is success leaves clues uh, and uh, problems leave clues too. The first thing I do is I look at what their operating expenses are. Yeah. Uh, where are they spending their money? Uh, and do they need to spend it there? Uh, a lot of times, startups generally don't have this problem. Startups, you know, they got investors on their uh, breathing down their back and, and they have to justify their existence almost every day. They're begging yeah. for cash, right? Yeah. So you won't find usually won't find startups that have uh, that, that are wasting what I'll call wasting operating expense. Uh, but um, uh, when when the companies start to get a little bit bigger, they say, well, you know, we can, we really need a human resource person, right? Uh, I don't happen to think anybody needs them, but <laughs> some people do, right? Yeah, we need a human resource person, right? And then what happens? Or they and they hire a human resource person, and that person goes, I need another, I need another guy. I need some help here, right? So mm-hmm. uh, maybe I'll hire another guy. Maybe I'll, you know, contract an uh, agency, and, and so expenses just start to grow and get out of hand, and they're not related to what has to be done right now. Which is, if you're a startup, uh, and if you're, you know, in the first stage beyond a startup, what has to happen right now is you have to survive, right? Yep. You have to make money every single day. You have to be profitable every single day, and uh, and if you're What I tell people all the time, she is, you you watch the numbers every single day. Don't watch them once a month. Don't watch them once a quarter. Watch them. I know, by the way, uh, every single day what my order intake is at my company. Every single day. Uh, If one day goes by where it's like really weird, it was way too high or it was way too low, then I'm asking my sales guys, what the heck happened? And my thesis is if you watch the numbers every day, then you'll make the numbers every week, and if you make the numbers every week, you'll make them every month, and then you'll make them year in year out. What what most uh, small businesses uh, a lot of uh, larger companies, the mistake they make is they say it'll be better next quarter. Yep. Or it'll be better the quarter after that. Sales guys are great for this; they're perfect for I won't call it lying, but putting the best the truth in its best possible light. It, it'll be fine next quarter, as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, and, and and I love the ones that say uh, we're going to be okay in the long haul. Well, you know, in the long haul we're all dead. So that's why I say you gotta gotta keep your eyes gotta yeah, you gotta keep your eyes on the numbers every single day. And when the numbers start going south, you have to dig in right now, find out why they went south and fix it. And that'll either be because, you know, your competition started taking some of your business or your customers started to cut back or, or or structurally the market's soft, or you're spending too much money. It can't be any more than one of those three or four choices. And then you do something about it.
1: Mm. So now, in your career as a consultant and a troubleshooter that went around fixing companies before, or even while you're still a CEO running a big business, what are some of the toughest calls you've had to make in business?
0: Well, they're generally people calls um, because uh, they carry the most risk. If you do them incorrectly, uh, from a liability point of view, uh, if you're going to take out a sales guy as an example, he might go over to your competition, and even though uh, he's not supposed to tell your secrets, he might. And so, the toughest calls have generally been uh, uh, at executive level sales uh, positions. You know, mm-hmm. you, ha- you have to you have to go. Of course, you have to be at the point where you've been fair to the person, meaning you've, you've, you've counseled them on, here's my problem. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to fix it, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but you also have to be fair to the company. What I, what I found is most people, most executives, they, they, uh, take personnel actions way too late. Uh, they, they let people hang on longer than they should, uh, because they're, but usually because they're afraid to talk, they're afraid uh, to confront the person, mm. and. Um, why so is, those are tough. And, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: And why is it so hard for executives to actually have those difficult conversations with them? Um, I don't you know.
0: I I don't know. I mean, uh, they're uncomfortable in, in anybody's world. When I do them, and I've done I've done dozens and dozens and dozens of them, um, and they're uncomfortable in anybody's world, world. But generally, and particularly if you're from the Midwest and other parts of the uh, United States where people are like nice people. Um, it's the people who are afraid of, of uh, conflict.
1: Okay. It
0: makes them uncomfortable. They haven't been trained in how to deal with conflict. Uh, they, they haven't, they're they not experienced in dealing with conflict. Mm. And so they think if they just avoid it, it kind of it goes away. Of course, it, it mm. never, it very yep. seldom does. And that's the other thing I tell uh, people who, uh, you know, one of my favorite subjects is teamwork. Everybody loves teamwork. Teamwork is like the thing, man. Everybody's got to have teamwork, 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 teamwork. Mm -hmm. But few companies do. Some do, but most don't because uh, the whole notion that there's a lot of myths surrounding teamwork. uh, And one of them is that uh, teams are free. uh, One of the biggest myths is that teams are free of conflict or should be free of conflict. And it's exactly the opposite. Teams should have conflict. You want uh, conflict in a team because the best decisions, the best uh, uh, revolutions, the best uh, product innovations all come from conflict, not from everybody sitting around saying, oh, yeah, right, man, that's cool. I like that. And they, oh, okay, yeah. what else are we going to talk about? You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, But you have to teach the team conflict resolution skills. You say to them, Not only is conflict uh, 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 okay, I expect you to have conflict. You're not doing your job if you don't have conflict. But Mm -hmm. here are the conflict resolution skills that you will need to have productive, constructive conflict that produces a a, a desirable outcome instead of people just being mad at each other.
1: Yeah, and I think what I'm getting from that is basically thinking of the way families are structured. You can't have a family without people quarreling and fighting. Like a husband and wife will have conflict conflict arguments but they also resolve the arguments siblings all the time fight they resolve the arguments. so why would you expect you get to work and then you don't have any arguments and you don't have any problems
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. It's everywhere. It's in the church. It's in the schools. It's in your workplace. You know, you go to the grocery store, and there's conflict going on there. You know, the meat cutter doesn't want to do this. The checkout counter wasn't uh, nice to you. It's everywhere. So, uh, one of the most important skills anybody in business can have is to know how to uh, how, how to deal with conflict in a constructive way, so both sides of it come out of the conflict feeling that like it was okay and and uh, it was productive.
1: Right. So now in manufacturing, which is where you've uh, spent the bulk of your career, uh, manufacturing companies these days, especially around the world, even in America, are struggling right now. You know, the rise of technology, AI, 3D printing and all that. How can several manufacturing concerns, whether they're older, like you took over a 60-year-old company, I I believe. Was it 60 years old when you took it over or it's up to 60 years old now?
0: Uh, it's up. I think I, it was, I've been doing this uh, with this company for eighteen years. So it's probably like forty when I took it over. Uh, now it's sixty.
1: Oh, okay. So how can manufacturers um, start thinking about adapting for the future, given so much change and upheaval is going on right around their feet?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. In fact, I wrote a piece. I don't know if uh, Entrepreneur Magazine will write it, but they asked me to do a byline after they uh, saw my uh, mastering uh, success book. And uh, basically, the, uh, the byline was about that very, that very question. And, you know, if you look, if you're a manufacturer right now, your competition is not the Chinese. Mm. Now, you may be competing with the Chinese. You know, they have cheaper labor and, you know, they have, uh, you know, an advantage in, in the currency manipulation, all that kind, all that kind of stuff uh uh but and you may be competing with them but uh, they're not your competition what you just said uh, a minute ago is and that's basically robots and artificial intelligence that's the competition for everything right now i mean uh i kid, the name of the uh r- r- the uh what the, the it's a uh a machine learned artificial intelligence thing that uh, just uh, uh beat the grandmaster at some chinese uh, the name escapes me, but. Uh, Watson?
1: Is this- it Watson?
0: No, it wasn't Watson. I'm I, I, more that was it was the next generation one that's oh. uh, now you could do call centers with. It's a her. You okay. can do calls. She could do call centers with her. Uh, and uh, that one particular AI uh, entity alone is expected to disrupt like uh, some ungodly number of jobs in the next ten years, like like cool. ten million or something. Wow. And then, and then if you look at all the experts that uh, predict what's going to happen with AI and machine learning and robots. Is uh, just to give you one example, uh, I tell co- uh, companies that if, if you think you're immune to this disruptive force, you should know that AI and robots are going to replace surgeons by the year 2050. Mm-hmm. Now, if they can, oh, sure, they got the call centers and the easy stuff right now. And, you know, you can put a robot in the factory and, and they can weld and all, all that good stuff. But if they're going to disrupt uh, surgeons by 2050, you better start believing that they could disrupt whatever your company is doing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and so the guy that has the robot and has the AI takes your business, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't. So uh, every uh, manufacturing company, especially the one lower technology companies, they have to retool themselves to be uh, uh, higher technology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, a, as you know, quite a wide range of how, how high technology you want to get. The higher technology that you want to get, the more you can uh, have protected intellectual property, the higher the margins are, the harder uh, it is for people to compete against you. And of course, it's more expensive to to play in that space. But any company can do it. And uh, every company, in fact, my fifth book will be out uh, by January. It's called Metamorphosis uh, from Rust Belt to High Tech in the 21st Century World, where I lay out the exact formula. For how, how to do this, but but basically uh, it's an eight-step process. Uh, I, I don't know how much t- how much time do you have for this
1: part of it? Gee. Oh no, I, we can talk. It's up to you. I, okay, can use the
0: whole. I'll hour. go over this. Yeah, I, and I said uh, entrepreneur asked me to write a byline. Uh, who knows if they'll publish it or not? Um, they may. They may not. But basically, what I what I laid out in this byline. Is the eight steps that a company can take to become uh, to unleash what I call their uh, innovational potential, mm-hmm. and uh, the first step is as the CEO, you have the CEO has to put a stake in the ground that says no matter what, we're going to devote the time and the resources to become uh, unlock our uh, innovation potential. Uh, because if the CEO is not on board, completely committed and all that, it'll just be, you know, it'll just die and find. It just won't go anywhere. And that's thats where it stops, excuse me, where it starts. Hmm. And so the CEO then needs to bring together all the troops, say, Here, here's what we're going to do, here's why we're going to do it, here's why we need to do it. And most people when he does, I can tell you because I've been through this, so I, this is not an academic exercise for me. When you do that, the people are going to look at you and think, you're crazy mm. are you crazy we're, we're we're dumb metal and rust company and uh, and we, we could never be anything else we don't want to be anything else we don't need to be anything else and you'll get this not only from your employees but you'll get it from your boards and your shareholders too because generally employees uh, and shareholders and boards like nice cushy predictable nothing ever changes worlds right yeah. Predictable earnings, predictable outcomes. You know, let's not rock the boat. And uh, and the example that I use all the time uh, of a company that uh, recognized that it couldn't stay that way was uh, is Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh-huh. Now, Encyclopedia Britannica now uh, uh, has more revenue uh, by far from their digital sales than they than they ever had with their uh, uh, print sales. They recognized way back when that, you know, whether we like it or not, paper's going away. You know, you got Wikipedia, you know, you got Google. Mm-hmm. And if we don't get into the digital world, uh, we just won't survive. And, uh, and their show shareholders could have blocked that. and could have said, uh-uh, no, 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 no. Well, we don't believe you. We don't think that's going to happen. If it does happen, it's far into the future and all that kind of stuff. You know, the same stuff you always get. Uh, or or they could have made another choice, but they made the choice of making the conversion and going into high tech. Yeah, It's not a manufacturer, but you, you see the point. They could have made a, a, a different choice. They could have said, no, we're going to harvest the business we've got. We're going to cut operating expenses to the bone, and when this puppy dies, this puppy dies, which is a choice that could be made. Shareholders can make that choice. They didn't. And so when the CEO stands up in front of the whole crowd and says, here's what we're going to do, he's going to get a lot of disbelief, he's going to get a lot of naysaying, he's going to a lot of people say, you don't need to do this and, and just shut up and go away. But anyway, that's where it has to start. So then secondly, um, you need to find out, if you want to become a, an innovative company, you have to find out how innovative you are right now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So you have, have a baseline. And so you, you bring in a creativity expert and you do a, a survey, survey of the entire company. And you, these skills and these traits can be measured uh, by a, a professionally uh, you know, engaged um, uh, survey. And you, I tell CEOs all the time you may find out your company's a little more creative than uh, you thought. And they might not be using the creativity because human resources says you can't or because the engineering department says, no, 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 that's what we do, not you. Who knows? But you start there, and then you know where your gaps are in terms of where you want to be in terms of creativity and, and where you currently are. Usually where that gap is, gee, is uh, people don't even know the basic fundamental of uh, the creativity, which is brainstorming. Wow. That's usually where you start. People don't know how to do that. Now, now you get if you go into the Silicon Valley or you go into Austin, of course they're brainstorming all over the place. They're doing it at the ping pong tables and the whiteboards. But uh, Rust Belt and uh, o line manufacturers, they don't know uh, how to do that. Yeah. So that's usually where you start. Uh, and brainstorming is so important because that's where you get all the ideas. And you know, 99% of all brainstorming ideas aren't worth it. That one percent is, but the most important thing is you can't implement an idea that you never had. Yeah. Third step is you let, you give people the time to do it. See, you know what happens is uh, if the CEO doesn't mandate it, people will go, "All right, we got to do brainstorming. We'll do that after the real work gets done because we got to make the donuts first. Yeah. Well, and the and what happens is there's never any time for innovation. Uh, the innovation work. So the CEO has to say, "Hey guys, you need to do both." Okay. I get that, but boss, don't expect me to spend eight hours making the donuts and then uh, an hour innovating and brainstorming on my own time because the donuts still got to get done, right? Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's true. true. So what I do and what I did is I said, you got to give them a number. I said, I, I expect you to spend 20% of your time doing this, and I'm going to hire 20% more people so the work still gets done.
1: Okay.
0: And that's a big commitment. You have to do that. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, it'll never happen. And the fourth step is you, you uh, make a space. You build a space for people to actually innovate in. Now, in the beginning stages, uh, at least uh, in my company, people were uh, brainstorming anywhere they, they could in the factory, in the lunchroom, and all that. And then one day they came to us after a few years of this and said, We could do better if we had this like, this isn't exactly how they expressed the chi, but this is what they meant. If we had this cool high tech space conducive to innovating, we could do better than we're doing right now. So mm-hmm. I built them. I, I put it right in the middle of the factory.
1: That's your creation station, up, right? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs>
0: right. And I call it a Google-like uh, campus in the middle of the factory. It's it's as high-tech as high-tech gets. And uh, so you fast-forward when we started this three or four years ago, fast-forward today. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> anytime you want to walk back there, you'll see people innovating and brainstorming. In the beginning, you know, after we taught them how to brainstorm and innovate, we'd have to say, here's a problem I want you to work on. Here's one I want you to work on, and here's who I want to work on. Now they decide all that on their own.
1: Wow. So it gave them them empowerment and it gave them autonomy to do the work.
0: Complete autonomy and uh, and empowerment. And uh, while we're on that subject, you have to have the right people that want to do that and are able to do that. Yep. So you have to have you have to hire the right people, and you have to you know lead them correctly, and all that kind of stuff, which is you know uh, another part of the issue. But here's the hard part, and this is why it's important to have the right people. Everybody says, "Oh man, I would love to be a self-directed guy. I'd love to you know be innovative and creative and sit around thinking about stuff and all that." But but a lot of employees check their brains at the door, and that's where they want to leave them. Hmm sounds appealing to be in this creative atmosphere but there's accountability for that too and some people just aren't going to want to re-engage their brains uh and do more than the position description requires and uh and if you're going to st- go down this road you have to say goodbye to those people yeah train them coach them encourage them all kinds of stuff but if they don't uh, want to come along with the program they have to uh they have to go and then the last part really uh, is, uh, is so important is uh, you got to recognize, reward, and reinforce this process. And what we do is every time my team comes up with a creative idea, I bring the whole company together and, and celebrate. And I bring a professional photographer in. Uh, she takes a picture of the team that had whatever the idea was. And when, then we put it, uh, we take a whole page, four color ad out in the uh, local newspapers uh, featuring them and their accomplishments. And you wouldn't believe. How powerful that is because their neighbors say, Hey, man, I saw you in the paper yesterday. Wow, Wow. that's really cool stuff. The motivational power of that's unbelievable. But, like my old uncle Jim used to say, if money isn't number one, I don't know what number two is. And so, you know, you can talk intrinsic rewards until you're blue in the face, but without the money side, you're only giving people half the equation. So, every time we have a team that does something that cool, we uh, give each one of them a a crisp $100 bill while we're making the uh, presentation.
1: Hmm. and when you're doing this recognized reward and reinforcement I would get the feeling that the team bringing the innovation are they restricted to one team or is it several different teams because people could start getting you know jealous and having some bad feelings if they keep seeing the same team over and over again some people might not just want to be competitive and say hey you know what if those guys can do it we need to come up with something too
0: Yeah, you know, uh, that's a really good point, because uh, that that can cut both ways. I Mm. mean, on the one hand, when uh, people that uh, didn't get it see people that get it, they go... Well, maybe I need to work a little bit harder. Maybe I need to look a little, little cooler, or, or, or maybe uh, I'll find a way to uh, sabotage the next time this bunch tries to act so swift. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It could, it could go either way if you're not really careful about it. But let me give you an example. This is why, culturally, you have to have a, a solid foundation of uh, teamwork because teams don't really care. Uh, you know, the entire company, well, I mean, let me back up a minute. We have uh, a certain set of values in our company that we, we hold very dearly, and it's not just what I call bumper sticker values. It's just not, not slogans on the, on the boardroom wall. The, they're living, breathing values. And uh, about every quarter, we um, give somebody an award for, uh, for exhibiting one of those and displaying living and, and breathing those values. And uh, the, the bosses don't make the determination as to who gets the uh, award. Employees do Okay. And so they decide who gets this value award. It could be integrity, uh, could be uh, excellence, could be commitment, could be any of them. Uh, employees decide that they nominate, they vote it, and uh, and so they they're all interested in in. And it's amazing. These values. I'll give you an example. Uh, about eighty percent of the workforce votes on these values, and uh, and they they're nominating each other. <laughs> Well, you know, the guy that won it was nominating the guy that didn't win it and and so on and so forth. So that's the kind of culture and uh, cultural foundation you have to have for this sort of thing to work. But the other point I'll make is uh, the CEO has to be very careful uh, that there are – make sure there aren't uh, what I call cool kids. Yep. And, and not cool kids, right? And mm-hmm. um, I I remember when I was in high school, I was not one of the cool kids, and I, I didn't like the cool <laughs> kids at all. You know what I mean? Same here. And, yeah, well so you know what I'm talking about and so you know I was hoping those cool kids just come uh, tumbling right down and uh, and that's the kind of dynamic that happened in the workforce if you're not careful so when we give an award uh, for a, uh, a creative idea we make sure we recognize everybody else that was working on other ideas and the entire we always make sure that uh, that uh, we don't have a position or, or, or a perspective by people that uh, these are the cool kids and the rest of them are not
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's very hard when a team or an executive group decides to pick one or two stars and focuses on them to the detriment and to the neglect of the rest of the team because that just, I mean, I can't tell you my old company, we had a similar situation and it was just a terrible, terrible thing to witness where you have a few people getting some of the shine and then the rest of the people are just, being neglected so
0: oh well, it's horrible and, and and you raise a good point i remember one time that i i was in uh, i was asked to save a division in a company a couple of companies back and uh basically uh, we this is why you don't want to do skunk works right because everybody wants to kill the skunk works people because mm. they're the cool kids and we were basically a skunk works and uh we were the only ones who were developing new products and we just had one bang up hit after another and then we got arrogant. We're the cool kids, and you're not, and uh, and eventually, my entire division in that company got uh, uh, eliminated. Hmm. I was given a parachute, uh, uh, but I got eliminated, too, and it wasn't And so you think, huh, how's that happen? You're doing all the product development and making all the cool stuff, and all of a sudden, they get rid of you? Of course they do, because of what you just said.
1: Oh, interesting. So no now- skunkers. Yeah. So, be- so, before we transition towards the final wrapping up questions for the show, there's something I p- read somewhere in an article you wrote where you said something about companies should build and create a Cirque du Soleil kind of organization. So, what do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, you've seen <laughs> Cirque du Soleil, I, I, I presume.
1: No, I've seen it on TV, but I've not been there live. Oh, it's unbelievable! It's unbelievable,
0: and this is this is. This is better when I do this live because I can demonstrate <clears throat> what, I'm, what I'm saying. Uh, when, and I love doing Cirque du Soleil stories when I'm in front of an audience. But uh, what do you have with Cirque du Soleil, right? You have uh, a group of performers who are highly motivated, highly engaged, highly energized. Uh, and they come to work every day be, uh, with a specific intent of to do better than they perform better today than they did yesterday. Yep. Right? Yep. So, and if you've ever seen a Cirque du Soleil uh, uh, performance – they communicate perfectly with each other, right? They're, they're, they don't withhold you look at what happens in most organizations, people withhold information from each other people uh, don't go out of their way to help their teammates uh, they're, they, they live and work in their own silos, all the things that Cirque du Soleil is not. And you don't see a Cirque du Soleil uh, performer say to the guy that's flying through the air, you know what? I don't feel like catching you today. <laughs> I just don't feel like it. You yeah. know, it's Monday morning. I don't feel too good. I don't like you. You, know, you just don't see that. So when I talk to CEOs about the kind of culture they want to build, I say, you need that as the model of the culture that you want in your mind. That's sort of where you start. And you and you, uh, and you you can read about this, and I think it was Blue Ocean Strategy it was the first time I read about the Cirque du Soleil uh, a metamorphosis, mm-hmm. if you will. It was a it was a phenomenally brilliant strategic uh, play because they said we're going to tell And this is what I tell CEOs all the time. They said we're going to take the parts of the circus that nobody cares about, nobody wants, and and, and are the most expensive, by the way. We're going to eliminate them. And then we're going to build on you know, the experiences and, and kind of performances that people will want to see. And that's where we'll invest. So we'll take the money out of the low – my analogy, gee, is the low-margin products that are going to go away at some point in time that nobody cares. I'm going to plow that money into the higher-margin kind of uh, – Innovative products that you want to build. Mm. So anyway, the strategically, it was just a brilliant move, and it's and it's it's worked quite well. But so then the the response I get is nah, you can't expect people to feel like that. I mean, they're coming. They you know they just want to get out and go to the bowling alley. They care more about their bowling scores than they do about the company performance. At which point I say, and whose fault is that? Mm. That you don't have an environment uh, and an atmosphere and a culture that people want to be in as opposed to a lot of manufacturers, not all of them, but a lot of manufacturers, they have environments and cultures that are toxic, and people don't want to be in them, they, but they have to be because they don't have any choice. Yeah. So that's what I say, uh, and I have a fairly specific formula that uh, of how to get to, to that point uh, through uh, the installation values in a company and a culture uh, uh, that uh, is by design as opposed to by default. Cirque du Soleil is a design culture. They that 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 just didn't end up that way. Yeah, uh, they designed it that way, and it's exactly what they wanted. But most uh, organizations, they have cultures by default. They, if they even understand what the culture is, uh, it's like a four-letter word. You know, they don't they don't want to touch it because culture is this you know squishy beer and pizza for lunch crowd stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, lately, it's been easy. From uh, yeah, I wrote a, a white paper six or eight months ago uh, where I had a lot of research done on you know the impact of culture on organization performance, and it's clear, it's very clear that uh, really positive cultures uh, produce positive financial results, and really negative ones don't. And so I used to have to like convince CEOs that culture is something they ought to pay attention to. But, but thank God Wells Fargo came along and oh. defrauded 2 million customers, right? Yeah. And, and they Uber claim they have,
1: And, everybody and was, Uber
0: was the next one, United, United Airlines. Yeah. Every one of those, if you look at their uh, value statements, they're what I call bumper sticker values uh, on their websites. It's all what they're not. Yeah. Wells Fargo, quote unquote, does what's best for the customer. Right. That's why they cheated 2 million people. Uh, United Airlines has a uh, claims to be a, "quote unquote" caring, caring people. Yeah, right. That's why they throw babies and and women and children off of planes. Yeah, and uh, and Uber, of course, is that's just a mess. Yeah, <laughs> seriously.
1: Yeah. So as we start to wind down, Steve, I have a few questions that I typically ask uh, guests on the show, especially since this show is listening to more by people earlier in their careers. So for you, my first question is this. Um, what has been the keys to your success over the years?
0: Well, that's a fairly easy one to answer. Uh, you work your ass off. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you, you, I mean, that's where it starts. You, yeah. you work, you, you outwork the other guy uh, and, uh, you know, don't work as much as the other guy does. Outwork the other guy. Take on all the dirty, nasty little assignments that uh, nobody wants to touch. That way you'll get experience and, uh, and you'll get a reputation. And uh, the third uh, factor would be read everything you can get your hands on. Uh, be smarter than the guy next to you because you're reading more than him and, uh, and you're aware of what's happening. And then the fourth thing is uh, you, need a sharp, hey, you need really sharp people skills. Because I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how good you are. If you if you can't get along exceedingly well with people in the organization, you would fail.
1: Mm. And what does branding mean to you in terms of personal branding and corporate branding? Because those two are a big deal these days.
0: Yeah, you know, you, know, you have to. Boy, that's a really good question. You have to do both because, uh, you know, it used to be. People would come to work for a company, uh, collected to find uh, benefit, pension, and leave 30 years later. Of course, mm-hmm. those days are long, long gone. Now, the average uh, number of jobs that a person entering the workforce today will have uh, b- before he or she retires is like 15, something like that. Yeah. And uh, you don't ever want to uh, depend on headhunters to do anything for it because, as most people know, headhunters don't really do anything for you, they, mm-hmm. they do it for the company. And the way, so you need to be, uh, you need you need to be visible in the marketplace, and in the space where you play, and in the space where you may want to play next. And that that's with personal branding. I mean, you need right. to have a really good website. You need to have LinkedIn. Arguably, maybe Facebook, maybe not. I don't know. It depends on the uh, industry you're in. And of course, a Twitter account. Hmm. And uh, I have all of those, and I'm very, in and, and so does Miller Ingenuity. And I'm very protective of my personal brand. And very protective of the Miller Ingenuity brand. You don't get to change colors. You don't get to make statements. You know, it's not, I don't get on. Uh, uh facebook and go oh yeah man beer bong at the at this pool party last night wasn't that cool don't ever do that yeah don't ever put anything on your social media that isn't completely and entirely business related uh, because employers are watching that stuff now yeah. they they know what your they know what your life is like just based on what you paste on and once you, as you know once you post it it's there forever
1: yeah and steve looking back if you could go back in time what would you do differently knowing what you know now?
0: Well, I would have to say uh, the one thing that I, uh, ha- I had to get it later in life. I wanted it earlier in, li- earlier in my career. I want. I, these days, uh, I have a very significant international exposure. I mean, there, there aren't too many countries in the world that, uh, that you could uh, name that I haven't done business in and haven't been in and, and, and currently do business in all over the world. Um, I wanted to get that experience, uh, 30 years ago. I didn't end up getting it till about in the last, maybe, maybe 15 years ago. Mm. And uh, that's a piece of advice I give every, uh, I asked for it. I was in the company and I said, and we had a joint venture in China and I used to do business over there, but I wasn't in charge of it. and I wasn't living there. And so this would have been, I uh, don't know, 30 years ago. And I said, guy, they were looking for the next, you know, managing director of the shanghai uh operation i said give it to me i want to go over there it was a shitty assignment i mean it was really crappy i mean uh, 30 years ago it wasn't fashionable to do have joint ventures in china the hotel was horrible
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, living conditions were brutal and i said let me have that because i want to get that kind of international exposure right now because once you have something like that you can write your own ticket yeah if I if I had to do over again, I'd have pushed hard around that uh, and uh, would have made that happen. As it turned out, I had to get it ten years later and fifteen years later in a, in a, in a different way. But
1: hmm. and I guess for my final question would be: you you already alluded to this earlier in the podcast, but um, who are some of the people that you look up to, you study, and you try to absorb some of their thinking and wisdom as you? prepare yourself to be a better, more effective CEO and entrepreneur?
0: Oh, for sure. The first name that comes to mind is Tony Robbins. Tony. You're familiar with him.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think I have a bunch of his books, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've read everything he ever wrote, everything he ever wrote, and uh, I have uh, a, a journal from I don't know thirty years ago when I first read one of his books or went to the Firewalk or whatever it was, where uh, I bought one of his programs. You know, it says, "Here's your twelve day thing to being better." I can't remember what it was called. I went through that journal and you know setting goals and all that kind of stuff. And uh, as I look at, it, so this is thirty years ago, goals I set for myself for thirty years in the future or twenty years in the future, whatever it was, mm-hmm. I, I hit, I blew by every last one of those. Wow! Which which made me wonder. And this is the point she made me not wonder, made me conclude you didn't set your goals high enough.
1: Yeah.
0: And everybody says that, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Everyone always says, yeah, you know, yeah, if you uh, if you set a low goal and make it, you know, that's, that sucks, and set a high goal and not get it, you're better off. Whatever. That's all true. Uh, and the thing that I learned from Tony, there's a lot of stuff to learn from Tony, but the thing I learned that was most important from him was uh, urgency. You know, he's a big get-it-done-now guy. Get-it-done-now mm-hmm. and uh, massive action. Mm. When I have a, a problem I need to tackle or, or a uh, opportunity I want to go, I send like a dozen B-1 bombers at it. <laughs> I don't send two. I send a dozen. And uh, and that was probably the most important thing, two most important things I, uh, I learned from him. Uh, Brian Tracy, for sure. Uh, you look at some of the uh, – Jeff Bezos is an amazing, amazing strategist yeah. and, uh, and operating guy. I, I look at a lot of the things that he do, does. And uh, of course um, Steve Jobs, from an innovative point of view, you know, I'm not talking about his personality and how he, he treated people and all that kind of stuff. That was arguably not so cool. Mm-hmm. But in terms of how uh, he thinks, how he used to think, uh, and Jeff Bezos uh, he is Probably the most brilliant strategist in business today. Hmm. Wow. Everyone should study him. Everybody should study Amazon. I talk about Amazon a lot when I'm in employee meetings, and you know, I draw analogies between us and Amazon and what we should be doing. And what we, and in fact, if I could get a tour and get, get uh, you know to meet some Amazon people in their development and, and marketing organization, I, I, I but I'm sure they're not going to do it. I would love to do that.
1: Yeah, wow. And with that said, Steve, we've reached the end of the show. So where can people find you and learn more about you? I know you're not posting beer pong photos on Facebook. <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they won't find any of those. That's what they're looking for.
0: Uh, I, I would say two places. Uh, you can either go to my personal website, which is com uh Stephen with a v mm-hmm. that's the easiest to spell and uh there's a link on my personal website for miller ingenuity which is the other place they can find me. of course they can find me on you know just google me and they'll find me on twitter or facebook and kind of all over the place
1: okay and where can they get the new book the art of success that you co-wrote with uh jack the easy switch, just get it on amazon amazon great and i'll link yeah. to all that in the show notes so, right. it's been a pleasure talking to you, Steve. I really learned a lot, and I know the listeners and the audience learned a lot, too.
0: Well, I appreciate your time. It's uh, been a
1: pleasure talking to you, G. Have a good day. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, Go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur podcast at www.odogwu.com.